Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, how does the nation rebuild following violence and chaos at the U.S. Capitol? I'll continue the conversation about restoring confidence in democracy with Morehouse College professor Ilya Davis. Also, what role did folks like me, the news media, play in legitimizing the president's rhetoric these past four years? And I think the mistake was not taking seriously the fact that this guy could in fact, be president someday. And I will say that I think the black press saw Donald Trump for who he was even way back when. And so we did take him seriously. We did take his threat to democracy seriously. Those conversations coming up in just a moment. But first this, with Inauguration Day for President-elect Joe Biden just under two weeks away, President Donald Trump says he will not attend. In a tweet posted today, the president said, quote, to all of those who have asked, I will not be going to the inauguration on January 20th, close quote. There's no word yet on what President Trump will be doing during his final hours in office. Vice President Mike Pence, however, is expected to attend. Meanwhile, Georgia Republican Senator Kelly Leffler officially conceded. In a video posted to Twitter, Leffler congratulated her opponent, now Senator-elect Raphael Warnock. While my heart breaks at not being able to continue to serve Georgia and America, I'm tremendously proud of all we achieved together. Now, coming up on Monday's Closer Look, I'll have a conversation with Senator-elect Warnock about his journey from the pulpit of Ebenezer Baptist Church to the U.S. Senate. By the way, he says he will continue to preach every Sunday. In other news, the number of newly reported coronavirus cases continues to increase in Georgia. Now, at the time of this broadcast... 609,868 COVID-19 cases have been confirmed in Georgia and 43,796 have been hospitalized. And of those, 7,642 considered ICU admissions. Now, 10,100 Georgians have died due to the coronavirus. This goes back to March of last year when the state began recording these numbers. And as always, we tell you, this information is from the Georgia Department of Public Health. And all this will have an effect come Monday when state lawmakers gather under the Gold Dome for their second session during this COVID-19 pandemic. This year's 2021 session will look a little different than last. State centers will be required to wear a mask and be tested for COVID-19 twice a week. Last year's session was suspended and eventually extended to summer after several state lawmakers tested positive for the virus. This is Closer Look. And 
And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. So here we are, six days into the new year. But this time, we brought this hell upon ourselves. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California to the New York Island. Now it is up to Congress to confront this egregious assault on our democracy. And after this, we're going to walk down, and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down. Anyone you want, but I think right here, we're going to walk down to the Capitol. That ribbon of highway I saw above me That endless skyway And we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women. And we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. very clear. The scenes of chaos at the Capitol do not reflect a true America, do not represent who we are. What we're seeing are a small number of extremists dedicated to lawlessness. This is not dissent. It's disorder. It's chaos. Borders on sedition. And it must end now. I call on this mob to pull back and allow the work of democracy to go forward. You've heard me say before in different contexts, the words of a president matter, no matter how good or bad that president is, at the best. This land was made for you and me. A lot to dissect here. This is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. I want to welcome to the program from Morehouse College, Professor Ilya Davis, Director of the New Students and Transition Programs and Professor of Philosophy. Professor Davis, glad to have you back on the program. Good afternoon. Thank you very much for the invitation. Yeah, glad to have you back on the program. You know, the last time we spoke and I asked a question to listeners was, you know, about their faith in our nation's democracy. And with the violence at the Capitol, for many, this may seal that long and it may take a long time to break if folks have lost confidence in the concept of democracy. Professor Davis, first of all, your thoughts on what took place? Quite disturbing. Um, certain things that are blatantly obvious, everyone keeps reiterating the fact that it seems to be at least, and I'm sure there are more, but at least two senses of justice and fairness and multiple notions of democracy operating because we are almost rest assured that had they been black, the reactions would have been fundamentally different. Let me stop you there and ask, and let me ask you this, and and I want to stop you there because I've heard that and then I've heard people say, that's not fair to make that comparison. And I know you, you have an answer for me. 
<laughs> well, it, it may not be fair, but if we're going to speculate and provide counterfactuals, I think that it's, it's appropriate, primarily because of what we saw demonstrated this summer and before this. This summer, it can't be reduced to this summer. There's a history and a legacy of a disproportionate, overwhelming impact of legal forces and law on Black people. And that follows us. And when I observed what I saw yesterday, I, for the first few minutes, I anticipated swift and immediate, you know, uh, reaction from the police forces and it didn't happen. And then I had to pull myself back and say, you know what, this is consistent with what black people have said for years. And it's problematic. It should not be the case. And the issue is not whether or not we wanted an enforcement of violence toward the individuals. We want fair treatment. So to the degree to which these individuals were allowed to engage in the way that they did, uh, treat black people similarly. I mean, that's the problem. It's not about mistreating everyone. It's about fair treatment for everyone. And we found that it was inconsistent. It was asymmetrical and extremely problematic. But again, um, one thing I wanted to say, I am deeply sorrowful and I extend my condolences to four people who died, mm -hmm. one of which was shot, one of whom was shot and the other three. Um, I think they had preconditions that led to it, but the, con the fundamental conditions of the environment caused it. That should have never happened, should never have happened. But again, the inconsistencies with the way that law enforcement engages black people is fundamentally different. It is not as amorous. It is not as con congenial. And that is the fundamental problem. That is not fair. That is not a notion of justice we wish to function uh, under. And it is problematic when associated with notions of democracy. Let's back up to how this all began. President Donald Trump giving a speech. As we played there in that montage coming into our segment telling the those in attendance you know in a sense this is what we need to do let's march down to the capitol i'll be with you what did you make of that and do you agree that that was a direct reason and it incited what happened yesterday well i've said consistently and i believe i said it the last time you and i were together He's being blamed for a sentiment that is ubiquitous here in the US. And so what he does is he emboldens a fundamental notion of white privilege and white supremacy that comes through his, his vocal, but is represented in the hearts and sentiments of those individuals who marched yesterday. So what they find with him is grist for the mill, if you will. They mm -hmm. find motivation in his words. And so the irresponsibility of his speech is problematic. But we can't, we cannot overestimate what it means that the United States of America has not fundamentally dealt with this legacy and history of marginalizing people. And it comes home to roost. And that's fundamentally the problem here. He knows his audience. I mean, think about it. There was a famous German philosopher, theologian, Friedrich Schleiermacher, who would talk about the preaching moment as this notion of a metaphor of a pendulum, that the only reason you get an amen from the audience is because you're saying something that is resonant with their own belief system, right? If it's not consistent with what they believe, then you don't get an amen. Mm -hmm. So what happened when he was speaking, the individuals found what he was saying to be consistent and resonant. It resonated with them and consonant with their beliefs. That's the only way you get them to say and do and behave the way they did. They already believed it 
the motivation was there by him and by his words. So he he pushed forward, he emboldened, he strengthened what had already been their resolve. Folks like me and a lot of the folks have been calling this an attack on democracy. Do you subscribe to that notion, that phrasing? It, it, yes, it is an attack on notions of democracy because what you lose here is the ability to represent your disagreements in less disagreeable forms, right? The idea of a democracy is not to respond in these very vile and violent ways. It was supposed to be represented, right? Even though we live in this sort of, you know, Republican slash Democratic constitutional state, I mean, it's supposed to be represented through other forms of disagreement. And what happened yesterday was absolutely undermining the notion that we're supposed to have an exchange of power and conversations and dialogue in nonviolent form. Now, we know historically, the United States of America has had a problem with how they understand these things. I mean, if you just look yesterday at the responses to violence on the part of the state, uh, there's a very fundamental problem there. And so I would say that democracy does not celebrate that type of behavior because it's trying to assuage the needs of individuals in nonviolent ways. And black people, again, we've been tutored and trained in the notions of nonviolence for decades, if not centuries. And we fundamentally never reacted in ways that are similar to that. And so I think it is anti-democratic that an institution was overrun by a group of marauders who cared less about democracy and more about personal interest. So, Professor, let me ask you this, and you, you talk to students, and so next time you're in your virtual classroom and your students say to you, and they pose that question, we're always asked, as black people, to, this is our, our way, the nonviolent way. But then they look at what happened yesterday, and they pose this question to you, well, Professor, where do we go with this then? What do you say well, to them? Again, it becomes difficult because the first thing is always to allow those individuals to express their deep, heartfelt reflections on what transpired because they are angry. And the anger is less about the destruction of a physical um, building and more about the destruction and the inconsistency of what they've been taught, mm -hmm. right? You're destroying the ideas and the ideals that they have been, that have been forged through educational structures. So there's a failing in our institutions not to have a level of honesty that is needed to talk about how the marginalization of gay and trans brothers and sisters and, and blacks and, and indigenous people and other people who have been marginalized in this country, uh, how it is that there seems to be at least two regulatory processes, right? Oversight. And then afterwards you have to say, well, what can we do? What's possible with respect to what we can offer this this fledgling democracy because we do live in a very immature democracy we live in a peter pan land right democracy won't grow up it's time for us to make more progressive dynamic moves towards a more progressive structure and so the democracy has to have the ideas forged by these marginalized individuals listen to these voices our representative system seems to be problematic because they they appear to be more aristocratic than representative and we're going to have to address that as well. And that's going to come home to roost as well, because if you look at even the salaries and the wealth of individuals who are so-called representatives of the people, that's inconsistent with the people. I mean, we've always talked about that. So I would have to try to encourage the students. This is a contradiction to every ideal that is represented in democracy. But what can we do? 
mm-hmm. right? We are going to have to make these changes and primarily on the local level and move towards federal levels. Mm. This week's horrific, disturbing and, and destructive action of what we'll call insurrectionists leads this question. How much confidence America's citizens have in the concept of democracy. So we're going to pick up the conversation from yesterday's program. And joining me now from Morehouse College, Professor Ilya Davis, Director of the New Students and Transition Programs and Professor of Philosophy. Welcome back. Thank you very much for having me. Well, a lot has happened since our last conversation. Uh, President Trump has, in a sense, conceded. Uh, He also just, since he's back on Twitter, has said he's not going to attend the inauguration. But now there's this whole sort of self-analysis of the Republican Party, and I want to talk about that, and that is the culpability of the GOP these last four years with Donald Trump as president, and now folks are distancing themselves. If you, as American citizen, watching this unfold, and the question is, where have y'all been? question to you, professors how much accountability lies with the Republican Party for all these four years in terms of the rhetoric that's led to folks losing their lives and other consequences? Um, I believe that they're quite responsible. And more importantly, it's probably a lack of moral fortitude and turpitude with respect to knowing that behaviors were unacceptable but not articulating your disagreement or even showing some form of righteous indignation because the consistency is what's needed. Mm -hmm. And the failure to be consistent created a lot of the ambiguity in society because it's not about conservative or liberal or progressive. Some things were just morally deplorable, the way that he would villainize and, and, and demonize certain groups, just the way you talk about them, the way he talked about them. And so I really expected more moral fortitude on the part of individuals who were, are members of that party. And I recall when he was elected, many of the students were upset that he was elected. And sadly, I believed in something that many black people have had a tendency to believe in. And that is uh, that this is a country that is somehow guided by its laws, its constitution and other structures and institutions. And I told the students at that time when they were very upset I said, well, don't worry. He won't do anything beyond what Congress allows. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, look what happened. Right. And I expected them to hold their moral sort of vision about this country to the degree to which some of these things should not have happened. And they failed. They absolutely failed. So when you say culpable, that's a very nice way of saying they are responsible. I just finished a being part of a roundtable for a national program, and part of the conversation was about this whole notion everyone is saying, this is not who we are as a nation. And yeah, I'll be honest, yeah. you know, I responded with, for a lot of folks who look like me, we've dealt with violent mobs for generations. And maybe it's at a point now where it's, don't focus on, this is not who we are. If this is who we are, let's address it. And then how do we fix it? Because that, I think you're, go ahead. No, that, you're exactly right. I mean, part of it is the level of honesty and critical evaluation of oneself as a nation has to be ongoing. And so at no time, and you've heard this before, the notion of a form of American exceptionalism, I mean, there's one sense 
you know, Sakhvan Berkovic, a famous Americanist, writes about the American Jeremiah, and he gives an offering of what this American exceptionalism can mean. But one thing it definitely means is we're better. So whatever you do, we do it better. And that's a very abbreviated form of it, but that's problematic. One should always see oneself as a nation, as a state, as in need of improvement. We have homeless people, we have marginalized groups. So you should never celebrate the fact that you have a disproportionate number of rich people, right? Multimillionaires and try to take that anomalous fact and then ascribe it to the entire country. Mm -hmm. Most of us aren't doing that well. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done. So this notion of exceptionalism, that somehow our, our moral view of the world is better. Um, everything in America is better. This is the greatest place in the world. No, the same way an individual is supposed to take stock of their own failings. We have to do that. And it has not happened, which leads you to say, my God, is this who we are? Yes, it's who you've always been because you've never reconciled. You've never had any inter sort of, I don't know, you've never allowed yourself to have an intervening moment of critical evaluation that would allow you to understand your failings and that you need much more work. Much work, more work has to be done on a consistent and continual perennial basis. And we have not done that. This nation had an opportunity after the Civil War uh, one might argue after the Great Depression, trying to come out of that, maybe even World War II, as the boys came home. But even when the boys came home, all those boys didn't have equal protections for the country they all were fighting for. You could look at the civil rights movement. You could look at after 9-11, look at the last Great Recession. How many times does this nation need to espouse this is not who we are we're going to be better and then there's nothing behind it so it's not a it's not an easy fix it's not a quick fix so no. someone listening says well professor are you saying then it begins with who we put in elected office does it begin with people from the mayor from our councilmen or aldermen so is the road to being who we want to be is that a political road or is it a combination of a whole lot of pathways Yes, you're correct. Philanthropic education. Yes, yes, exactly. So you're on the same page. It's it's a complex of issues. And the political is only one manifestation of of how we look at ourselves individually and collectively through communities. And part of it is we failed poor people. We failed working poor people. We failed the marginalized because we don't intentionally work to clarify the social structures, these institutions, and how they should come to bear in people's lives. And you and I have had this conversation before. It's back to education. We don't offer people fundamental insights about the very social structures we live under. And what happens is you're left to a very parochial, limited notion of reality. And then when someone espouses that reality, we find that to be the connecting point. And so I think years ago, there was an analysis done. The average American has a, a, an evaluative, uh, I don't know, structure that allows for them to have the interpretation of a seventh grader. Mm -hmm. right? Most of us comprehend on a seventh, eighth grade level. That's very low. And so if you listen to the rhetoric of most politicians, that's where they meet the audience, right? They don't expect more from them. They mm -hmm. speak in very elementary terms. And then if someone pushes them, they'll say, well, that's too much. What I'm saying is we have to invest in how we're going to educate a citizenry 
that is intelligent enough to understand the implications of what we're asking for. And that's not done. And that's why it's easy for this man, this president now, to get away with so much. People have no sense of expectations, right? What do I expect from a president, from a congressperson, from a, a senator, such that I can make that particular request of them? So let me ask you this then for Senator-elect Biden and his administration and all the new folks in Congress, does his burden fall on them combined with all the other entities that you talked about? After Biden is inaugurated, you're not going to magically change everyone's viewpoint who was in opposition. It's not going to happen. What is the strategy here? What's the end game? I guess is a better question, Professor. What's the end game that we want now with a new administration? And see, I don't want to sound too maudlin, but you and I are not going to see the end game. We can help its movement moving toward that direction. We're not going to see it. And I think your intimation is, is accurate. It can't happen overnight. So what can we do now? Those of us who consider ourselves radicals and progressives, individuals who seek to expand the notion of freedoms, justice, equity for others, even when we ourselves have gained a certain access, our question is, how do we promote this for others? And so even if we remove the Trump era, there were still problems. The 1% was still growing disproportionately economically and socially than the rest of us. So those problems are still present and they must be addressed by this present um, 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 presidency. And so we can't assume that, well, we've gotten rid of the more extreme case, therefore things will be good. No, you've gotten, you've gotten rid of an extreme case, get back to work get back to work. And maybe one thing that we can salvage is a sense of our critical evaluation to say, look, we, we don't have the polarizing rhetoric of a particular president, but we still have social economic inequalities such that we're going to have to push our congressmen and other representatives to focus on these things. We still mm. have a problem of poverty. That is a big problem. Mm. What will history say about this week, not just with the violence in D.C., but also with the election of Georgia's first black senator, Georgia's first Jewish American senator, and everything leading up to this moment right now that you and I are having this conversation. What would history say about it? Well, one thing I think you may have said again, I'm, I'm quoting you as if you're one of my greatest textbooks here, <laughs> is that, you know, this isn't a kumbaya moment, right? It's nice. I, I am elated that a Morehouse man is the first African-American senator to represent this state, as well as my Jewish brother being representative of this state. That is wonderful. But those are only moments in a long line of things that need to be done. And so what, what some histories are going to report is, in light of the fact that these individuals were elected, what can we hope, right? What are our aspirations in light of their presence? We know the limitations of individual senators. So we now have to ask ourselves, what can be said and done by these individuals such that they can promote the lives of those who've been marginalized? So maybe that's the push. We have to push us off and, 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 and Warnock in such ways that we're going to say, listen, this is what we're asking. We got these six years. We may never get it again. So we got we to gotta extract as much as we can, as much freedom out of these six years as we possibly can. Right? You might get six more, but right now we have to extract as much as we can. So hopefully the history books will put a little asterisk there and say, this is wonderful, but, but we still have poverty, but we still have marginalization, but we still have, I mean, these things must be addressed. And again, 
senators are federal representatives. Mm -hmm. They're not state representatives. And so many of the people aren't clear about what does that mean? That means that Georgia is now merely being represented. The interests of Georgia are being represented. So history has to say, wonderful that you all are there, but what do we do? What do we request of our representatives now that will somehow fortify what we believe are the more progressive policies that need to be implemented in this state? And again, no one can give any clear, coherent sense of how it is that the state turned. I know people speculate, but the reason why I say this is because many people don't realize that a lot of the people who voted for Barack Obama voted for Donald Trump, right? And that's still incoherent to me. And people speculate, people get paid for speculating, but that's a very, very, very weird sense of electoral politics, you know? And then people say, well, because they seem to be outsiders. That's not true. Everybody's an outsider, right? I mean, it didn't make sense when you have high levels of poverty and you elect a billionaire. That's inconsistent, that's incoherent, right? It's just problematic. And so what I'm saying is we're going to have to say, listen, let's make sure that we're covering and protecting those who don't have access, either rhetorically or materially, and provide for them. So history is going to have to be a little cruel and say, yes, but I expect more of you. I want more out of this. We need more freedom, more equity, more fairness. And also it depends on who's writing this history as well. <laughs> We've had that conversation. Amen. <laughs> Ilya Davis, director of the New Students and Transition Programs and professor of philosophy at the Morehouse College. Professor, thank you so much for finishing our conversation. I really appreciate it. And thank you on behalf of everyone from Morehouse College. We thank you. I'm still waiting on my sweatshirt. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Got you. You're covered. <laughs> Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Next, herein lies the beginning of the problem. I watched NBC this morning. They didn't report it exactly correctly, but that's, you know, very, very, that's the fact with NBC. Nothing I can do about that. Why don't, might, why don't you some, people act? Let, let me ask you. You said why some don't state. You act, why don't you act in a little more positive? It's always trying to My get you. My question to you Get is, you, get you. And you know what? That's why nobody trusts the media anymore. My That's question why to you people, is, how is that going to impact? Excuse me, you didn't hear me. That's why you used to work for the Times, and now you work for somebody else. Look, let me tell you something. I think you should let me run the country. You run CNN. All right. And if you did it well, your ratings well, let me would be ask, much if better. I, if I may okay, ask one enough. other question. Mr. President, if I may, if I may uh, ask Peter, one other ahead. question, are you worried? Of, that's enough. That's no, enough. Mr. President, I, well, that's I was enough. going to ask one of the, the other folks. That's had, enough. Pardon me, ma'am. I'm... I'm Mr. President, that's enough. Mr. President, I had one other Peter, question, if I may ask, on, on the Russia investigation. Are you concerned that, that you may have I'm not concerned about anything with you the may have Russian investigation because it's a hoax. Are you, that's enough. Put down the mic. As far as BuzzFeed, which is a failing pile of garbage, writing it, 
I think they're going to suffer the consequences. They already are. And as far as CNN going out of their way to build it Please. up. Well, when you when you report fake news, no, when you report fake news, which CNN does a lot, you are the enemy of the people. Go ahead. We'll call that President Donald Trump's mixtape of press conferences after being elected in 2016. I had a conversation with a fellow journalist, actually a very good friend of mine and one of my mentors. Her name is Sid. And I shared with her that this segment was coming up on Closer Look. And I said, you know, we'll focus on what role as journalists and credible news outlets did perhaps we play, our industry, play throughout these last four years in contributing to Trump's behavior. So she penned a statement, and it reads in part, quote, We didn't contribute to Trump's behavior. We legitimized it. And we did that by believing in our heart of hearts that we are bystanders reporting on history while somehow not affecting it. But that's not how this works. Close quote. And I'll include more of Sid's remarks as I break from this host role. I'm actually going to join fellow journalists. Professor Nsinga Burton is co-director of the Film and Media Management Concentration at Emory University in the Department of Film and Media and founder of the Burton Wire. Dan Wisenhunt, editor, founder, and publisher of Decaturish.com, a local news website based in Decatur, Georgia, with the focus on all issues to cap. Welcome to you both, and yeah, Happy New Year. Thank you. Thank you. And Singh, I'm going to start with you. What is it about journalism that you like when you are reporting and writing? You do a lot of things, but this is at the core of what you've been doing. What is it about this industry that you made you want to be a part of it? Yeah, well, because I'm a film and media scholar, people forget that I'm a trained journalist. <laughs> you know, once you get that PhD, they forget that you're a trained journalist. Mm-hmm. The reason I became a journalist is because I wanted to elevate stories that were important to me and my community. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't often see some of the many wonderful things that were happening uh, in our community. Uh, and so I felt like I wanted to shed light on those uh, issues, as well as some of the um, other issues uh, and, and, and that we face, including some social justice issues, economic justice issues, environmental justice issues. Mm-hmm. So my beat has been race for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is very heavy lifting, um, as Dan, I'm sure, can <laughs> attest to, as well as you. Um, and so you get to see the best and the worst of society, particularly here in the United States. Um, but that's why, you know, some stories need to be told. Uh, Many things that are happening in our country, even what's happening now, are very complex and sometimes just needs to be broken down a little bit so that people can really understand how things work, like how government works, um, things of that nature. And so I think becoming a journalist, a writer um, is imperative or was imperative for me because I had stories that needed to be told and I wanted to see myself Mm -hmm. in the media I consume. Dan, what about you? Well, I actually failed out of uh, theater school, um, and I was, uh, it's a true story. No, I'm not making I'm so, I'm no. so sorry, Dan. I didn't know. Yeah. No, no, I failed out of theater school. That's okay. I, w- I wasn't a very good student, but I did like to write, and uh, there were a lot of people that failed out of the theater school at University of Alabama, and what they did was to get out of school faster, they went to the broadcast journalism school because that's where most of the credits would transfer. So um, that's what I did. I, I went to the broadcast journalism school, uh, actually majored in radio broadcasting, but I also started freelancing uh, for the student paper. And, you know, I, I'd always been a writer and always liked to write. And I realized I liked the, the immediate gratification of uh, the impact that my writing could have mm-hmm. on people and how it would always find an audience. And so 
I just kept doing it and I kept working, working hard at it. And, uh, you know, eventually I wound up at the Aniston star and, you know, covered all the beats there for gosh, six years. And, mm-hmm. you know, fast forward, I'm, I'm done a few media jobs since then. And then I wanted to start my own thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, as far as why I like doing it, I mean, I like it because I'm able to, uh, make a difference in my community with what I do. Um, you know, people need to hear what's going on with their government. They need to hear what's going on with their community. And when they're more informed, hopefully they make smarter choices, Donald Trump notwithstanding. Um, you know, they, they, they tend to make smarter choices when they're more informed. So that's why I stayed in it. You know, why I got into it is a little bit of a different story, but why I stayed in it was mm-hmm. because I, I like being useful let me stay with you for a minute, Dan, because when he was candidate Trump, then he was using the phrasing fake news and referred to our industry as enemy of the people. And we all knew how problematic that was going to be in terms of reporting on his administration if he were to be elected. And then he got elected and it continued. What mistakes would you say our industry made back then in trying to maybe curtail some of that? Did we give well, him too much coverage even when he was a candidate absolutely but let's let's talk about why we why the industry did that i mean journalists often won't admit this but um when there's a really crazy candidate um they get kind of excited because it's it's ratings it's news people read it and you know donald trump is like the king of crazy right so at the beginning when we weren't taking any of this seriously Everyone thought, oh, this is so funny. He's he's totally wrecking the Republican Party. This is great. And then he won. He won the primary. And then everyone was like, oh, crap, we got a problem on our hands because this guy could actually be president now. And there was still some, some dismissiveness of, oh, this will never happen. This will never happen. And then he got elected president. And they were like, oh, crap, no, we really got a problem on our hands. So I think... Um, arrogance and presumptuousness was probably the biggest mistake in thinking that we could let this man who is saying even you know way back when even during his first run for president that didn't pan out uh deeply problematic and troubling things and i think the mistake was not taking seriously the fact that this guy could in fact, three presidents someday. And, uh, you know, we wouldn't have given any other Republican candidate that level of coverage, I wouldn't think. I mean, Jeb Bush didn't get that level of coverage. You know, Marco Rubio didn't get wall-to-wall coverage. But, you know, every time Trump tweeted something, it was it dominated the news cycle for a whole day. Um, mm-hmm. And that went on every day. And still and it continued. It never really stopped. Mm-hmm. Professor? Uh, Yeah, well, I cover a lot of issues that impact African-Americans and women. Mm -hmm. So we have seen Donald Trump and his rhetoric as a threat based on the history of those two disenfranchised populations in this country. Mm -hmm. Um, So we, I think, were taking him very seriously from the very beginning because that is part of our experience, dealing with people that, you know, our white allies and friends don't have to deal with quite frankly because <laughs> they they just have they don't have to deal with them they don't have, they can choose to be either engaged or disengaged or what have you but a lot of times when you're a member of a disenfranchised group you don't get to pick and choose who you get to deal with particularly when you're trying to change your life and your life situation 
So even as journalists, you know, even the black press came about because we weren't allowed to be a part of the mainstream press, right? Mm -hmm. um, but even as journalists, when you see a candidate like Donald Trump, a person like Donald Trump, um, we know how dangerous that person can be. Um, so while you try not to opine about it, unless it's an editorial, um, you definitely want to be careful and thoughtful and intentional with the type of coverage you give him. And I will say that I think the black press um, in general, black media specifically, if you want to include um, bloggers and folks like that, saw Donald Trump for who he was even way back when. Um, and so we did take him seriously. We did take his threat to democracy seriously. Um, we knew that he could be president because we work with people who are presidents who are very much like him. And uh, despite that fact, they still ma manage to rise and keep rising and keep rising mm -hmm. um, to power in, in lots of different parts of society. So journalists, I would say black journalists in general, journalists of color specifically, um, took Donald Trump for who he was. And so when he trained his target onto the media um, pretty early on, even before he actually won the primary, <laughs> we knew what was coming because we've had it, we've experienced it before. Um, so I will say that we were in front of this. I recall many conversations with fellow journalists, some right here in the WAB newsroom, some obviously here in Georgia, and having conversations where we were talking about how people were saying, well, you just can't come out and call the president a liar. And how do we say when he says something that's not true? And I remember telling someone, well, wouldn't we say that is not true. The president's claims are not true. And you have to have all these conversations and talk to an editor about how do you craft this message. And I'm like, we shouldn't have to craft a message. We tell the truth. We say what it is. I mean, and Dan, it's a little different with you because you're the publisher and editor. You know, you can say what you want. But I mean, was that part of the problem, you think, that some journalists and news outlets just didn't want to come out and say, this man is not telling the truth? And now I feel like the last two years we hear more of, you know, so-and-so reports that we have fact-checked that and that's not true. But it was almost like it was too late because so many people had absorbed his, you're fake news, you can't trust the media, they are the enemy of the people. Even really after a year in, that so many folks had absorbed that. It was like we were all, we were behind the eight ball to begin with, you know? I mean, do y'all have any thoughts yeah, on I that? Think, I think... I think the media in general has been in pretty deep denial that this about the fact that this is what the Republican Party is now. You know, I heard a quote, I don't remember who said it, said, you know, the Republican Party is a broken state and Donald Trump is its warlord. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. You know, the reality is that Donald Trump is merely parroting very boldly and directly uh, a lot of the things that the Republican Party has been about for years and years and years, even before this, you know, with the rise of Fox News and all these these organizations that have been basically telling a mostly conservative, older white audience that, hey, everything you read in the media is a lie. It's not the truth. This is the truth. You need to listen to us. And, you know, that's that's really where Donald Trump came from. If, if he has any gifts at all. Um, it's in recognizing that all he had to do was take that message, uh, sharpen the point of his spear a little bit, and uh, attack with it. And that's what he did. And he, surprise, surprise, you know, the audience that had been prepped for that uh, was receptive to it. So I think, you know, before we have a conversation about 
what Donald Trump is and what did Donald Trump do, we need to have a conversation about uh, the Republican Party and acknowledge that fundamentally uh, the Republican Party has become a party that doesn't like government very much, that doesn't like democracy very much. You know, look at what uh, the Secretary of State and the legislature in Georgia are about to do right now. They're about to reform, reform in air quotes here, uh, what they're really trying to do is suppress absentee voting, and they're calling it a reform based entirely upon uh, conspiracy theories that the election was rigged. There's no evidence that absentee voting was abused at all. But the problem for them is when people absentee vote and they realize, oh, we're going to lose elections now. We can't have that. And the media, you know, I saw an AJC headline. It was, a, you know, Republicans propose strict uh, curtailing of absentee voting. What they need to say is Republicans are suppressing votes because that's exactly what they're doing. They're not reforming voting at all. They are engaged in rigging elections. So that's where we really need to start having this conversation. It's not Trump. That's the problem. Trump is the symptom of the fact that the Republican Party has become an actively activist, anti-democratic party, and they don't like democracy. And they've shown us that time and time again. So, Nsinga, based on what Dan said, and you and I both know, and I've had fights with editors from headlines to, oh, you can't say that. You know, I think that's a great example of what Dan used in terms of the headline. Is it a turning point for our industry where we really have to start looking at how we, whether it's a headline or not, because now you need a headline to get someone to click on it to read the article. Is this a turning point for our industry now and moving forward and how we are going to cover government and politics and just calling it is what it is and not trying to nuance it or massage the message so we don't get accused of being called, you know, biased or what have you? Because it is what it is. If you are trying to change election law that would benefit a particular political party, you are suppressing a vote. Correct? So as journalists, do we we write that? We say that? I know if I say that, I'll get all kinds of emails. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, like I said, I've been covering race (laughs) and culture for a long time. And you will get those emails and you'll get handwritten letters and all that. But I think you have to say it. Um, yeah, I remember I was in a forum on um, journalism and fake news, and I was one of the uh, featured panelists and a very, very senior um, CNN um, person. Um, when I said that we need to start calling out Donald Trump on his lies, like reporting it like this is factually inaccurate. Mm-hmm. This is factually inaccurate. Um, you know, I, I was told that I was dangerous really? by this person. By doing that, I was being dangerous because I was um, engaging in biased reporting to label somebody's um, free speech as a lie, even if it is a lie, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, we definitely have free speech and I'm a proponent of free speech for sure, but free speech is not free from consequences. So you having the right to say something doesn't mean that I don't have the right to call it what it is. That's also free speech. Um, and you can't hide under this guise of, you know, um, we're going to be objective and unbiased. And so we're just going to let people figure it out for themselves. I mean, you can do that. And that's what we really want to do, right? Give you this information. It's exactly what Dan said. That's how we're trained to do it. Give people information, let them make their own decisions. But if it is in fact a lie, mm-hmm. you can call it that. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I think, um, you know, we have to do this work. And this is what Donald Trump is showing us. And for people who, you know, um, 
didn't see the the danger in what he is doing and the danger and how lies have been perpetuated, you know, it, it, against communities of color for centuries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so this is not new to us. It's true to us, right? How lies can become lynchings, how lies can become uh, terroristic acts, how lies can destroy you even um, when you haven't done anything. Um, and so we have to do that work. And it's not easy work, uh, but we have to do it, particularly when you have a pathological liar who is in office. I want to talk about how we use words or don't use certain words for a moment, because right now we're in the space of folks are using insurrectionists, which personally, I don't think that's the right word to use in terms of these folks that stormed the Capitol. And we have to get direction on what terminology we should use. Can't call them domestic terrorists. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? I can. Well, yeah, Dan. Can. I, I can and will. I can and will on the Burton wire. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about y'all. I I have I have taken to calling them what I think is the most accurate. Uh, they are a Trumpist mob. They are the the physical embodiment of Trump and Trumpism. Uh, that is, that I think is the most apt description. Insurrectionist is just too long a word to put in a headline. Um, that's that's really about the size of it for me. Um, I think Trumpist mob captures it for me. They're they're animated uh, devotees of this. I mean, it's a cult. I don't know what else to call it. You know, they they will do anything for this. I mean, they killed a police officer for this man. But we're we're losing in all this covers the fact that they beat a Capitol police officer to death. The members of his quote law and order party beat a Capitol police officer to death. That's a mob. Hmm. I mean, you know, it's domestic terror too, but that's mob violence. Uh, and, Some and will call it a lynching uh, at the request. Yeah, you could call it that too. I mean, you know, the, the the larger point is the president of the United States invited his most loyal and ardent followers to overthrow the government. And that happened on Wednesday. That happened two days ago. And I don't think the the shock and the the reality of that has quite hit home for people. Mm-hmm. But we need to we need to be very you know I, I was really proud to see CNN calling it a coup because that's exactly what it is. There's mm-hmm. there's no when you're trying to stop the certification of a lawful election result and maintain the current president no matter what the voters said that's a coup. Mm-hmm. Ain't no other way to put that. And that's what that is. Oh, yeah, no, I'm with Dan. I mean, uh, it's a coup. Uh, They are domestic terrorists. I know that uh, people don't like those terms, but that is what it has always been. And these are those kind of folks, Um, you know, the Trumpists, um, the loyalists, so to speak, you know, and and I mean, it is so disrespectful to call them rioters um, or protesters. I keep seeing protesters Mm -hmm. and I'm like, no, you know, and, and people keep making the false equivalency that it's just like BLM. It is not like Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter people are protesting social injustice. They are protesting getting shot in the back seven times, getting killed by police while you are sleeping. Those are real concerns. They are not storming the Capitol over conspiracy theories espoused by the leader of the free world. Two different things. Mm. So yes, when you are scaling the walls of the Capitol, when you take over and interrupt a very important vote, when you come with zip ties, 
when you beat a Capitol police officer to death and all the other things that they have done around the city, people are afraid to leave their homes. You know, same thing as in Charlottesville, people weren't thinking about the people who actually live in that city. Mm-hmm. They were afraid to leave their homes. They didn't just shut down the Capitol, they shut down Washington, D.C. and surrounding areas. Those are domestic terrorists. And those are the people who will do whatever they have to do to get whatever they need or think needs to be done at all costs. That is a coup. As we wrap that up. That is mob violence. And we need to say it as such. And people need to be removed. As we wrap up, I just got about a minute here, but I want to just, if there's a lesson learned in this for journalists, for news outlets and singer, I'll let you go first. What is it with these past Tell four the years? Truth. Tell the truth. Truth and accuracy matter. Truth and accuracy matter. And because it's a difficult truth doesn't mean that you should do things to make people feel better about it. Give them the truth and let them deal with it the way they must. Dan, I'll give you the last word. I think the the lesson for me and for all journalists needs to be that we need to stop worrying about the 30 to 40 percent of Americans that don't care about the facts. We're, We're constantly sinking treasure and time into convincing people that, frankly, don't want to be convinced. You know, at the end of the day, journalism is a business. And those people, they ain't your customers. Uh, they, they aren't ever going to believe what you say. I think we need to write for the audience that reads what we have to say. And that's the audience that believes in truth and believes in facts. And we need to, to stop worrying about those emails that are going to end up our inbox when we tell the truth. We just need to archive those things and, and move on. Yeah. Dan Wisenhunt, editor, founder, and publisher of Decaturish.com, local news website, very good one too, by the way, based in Decatur, Georgia, with a focus on all issues to cab. Professor Nsinga Burton, co-director of the Film and Media Management Concentration at Emory University in the Department of Film and Media, and founder of the Burton Wire, and she will tell you that she is a trained journalist, and she's a fine one too. Thank you both for this conversation. We could go on. I really appreciate it. Love talking shop with my fellow journalists. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. And I might add, they have the cutest kids I've ever seen. <laughs> Y'all take care. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of the day's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.